Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories, Apple, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, all those places. I have a blog you can check out. I haven't written in that really since March of uh, 2021, just before the Austin oral argument, but there's some decent stuff there, I think. You can find that at cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R. R-E-D-U-X.com. And if you want to reach out to me, please feel free to do so. My email is rich at cagerredux.com. That's R-I-C-H at C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right. Today is August 18th, 2022. And I want to return to a topic that has come up again and again in my writing and in my podcasting. And really, this is an issue that's as old as the regulation of college sports itself and goes back to the early 20th century. And that is who's really making decisions about college sports. And that has become increasingly difficult to figure out as the market has become more complicated, as the misdirection that the instance of stakeholder beneficiaries have used has become more intense and more sophisticated. And you have all of these moving parts in the apparatus of the big time college sports entertainment industry. And it's really difficult to know who is sitting at the most important tables in the regulation of college sports, in the financial market of college sports, and in the future of college sports. And that has become even more challenging after the summer of 2021, when one of the consequences of the NCAA's failure of leadership and its reduced relevance and its reduced power really took away this grand facade, the the NCAA national office, the Indianapolis facade that presented to the outside world the appearance of some national organization and also the appearance that the NCAA was actually running college sports when in fact, behind the scenes, the Power Five football interests have been running college sports. And that goes back to the 1970s before the Power Five actually came into existence. The big time powerful football interests have been in control of the NCAA and the regulation of college sports Board of Regents. And uh, remember, that case was decided by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1984 and changed college sports forever because it gave big-time football its financial freedom. And basically, the NCAA became nothing more than a puppet to the big-time, powerful football interests. And I think that's being exposed right now in this regulatory chaos. That's the way a lot of people are describing the current state of the voluntary regulation of college sports. And we don't have an NCAA president for all intents and purposes. Mark Emmert is lame duck, and he really is irrelevant in the overall uh, business model. And I think we're seeing now how important the NCAA president has been as a propagandist for the illusion that the national office is really in control of the voluntary regulation of college sports. And I think we saw a similar dynamic during COVID when the entire NCAA was basically shut down, but you still had the Power Five conferences talking about fall football. And a lot of people were asking, where's the NCAA? And there was a perception during those fall football decisions that nobody was in charge. Who do we talk to? We're a rudderless ship. And you had some of the uh, in-system stakeholder decision makers and beneficiaries in Power 5 football asking, what's going on here? And there's just chaos and there's no leadership. And I was just laughing then because really that just exposed the truth of the power structure in the voluntary regulation of college sports and that it was the Power 5 football interests that have really been calling the shots all Long, but they've had the NCAA veneer, the Indianapolis veneer, and the uh, NCAA president, and to a lesser extent, the chair of the NCAA Board of Governors, which is the association-wide governing body, have uh, really been the personifications of that veneer. And we don't have that 
right now. I'm working on another project and I'm looking at some of my older material and some of the source material. And I was looking back at the Commission on College Basketball and the press conference that Condoleezza Rice held after the report was released in April of 2018. And for the most part, she was right down the NCAA talking points line and some of what she had to say now looking back on it is really cringeworthy. But she had a couple of nuggets there that suggested that she understood that there were some real problems in the governance model. But at the very end of that press conference, she made a really important point that I hadn't really focused on when I was first looking at that back in you know 2018. And she was directing these comments to the university presidents and the institutions themselves. She said, look, you can't continue to hide behind the Indianapolis smokescreen. Indianapolis is your excuse. And when things go south in college sports and there are problems with the business model, you can't just point your finger at Indianapolis and say, it's your problem. And really, when you look at the structure of the NCAA, she's right. The NCAA is nothing more than the member institution. Yet the member institutions have permitted this lifeless, bloodless, dishonest bureaucracy to be the face of the institutional interests. And at the very beginning of that press conference, one of the first things that Dr. Rice said was that it was really frustrating for her because in her discussions with all these stakeholders, she said they operated like a circular firing squad where no one is accountable. And I have made the argument that that may be purposeful because then you never really know who to turn to. And I think that's being expressed by the in-system decision makers now in this regulatory vacuum post-Austin, post-constitutional makeover. And we still aren't sure what's happening with this transformation committee. I don't think a whole lot. And I'm going to be talking about that as well. But you have these people just pointing the finger at each other, and nobody wants to say it is my responsibility, and notably including the university presidents who have demanded control over the regulation of college sports, really going back to the 1920s and the Carnegie Report, the presidential leadership and control philosophy came out of the thinking of the Carnegie Foundation and then was really ramped up in the late 80s through the Knight Commission and then became part of the NCAA governance structure in 1996. And it is still part of the governance model under this new constitution, the principle of institutional control and responsibility for intercollegiate athletics still rests with the university presidents. But you have these institutions still pointing the finger at Indianapolis. And, in, and Indianapolis now is nothing more than the shell that it has always been. And what's happened post-Austin is it has simply exposed the ridiculousness of the NCAA bureaucracy. And I think one of the hidden benefits in this chaos narrative that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries are portraying, you've got that from Power Five conference commissioners, you're getting it from Nick Saban, you're getting it from Greg Sankey, from Tommy Tuberville, you know, Joe Manchin by association, as I discussed in the last episode. The sky is falling. Oh no, what's going on here? Nobody's in charge. Who's in charge? Help, help. That chaos environment, I think, is useful in the sense that it is one way to make the case for congressional intervention. It's not a very good case because it's an open admission that the big-time college sports decision-makers can't self-regulate. They've just lost control of this train and it's running away and they need Congress to come in and put the brakes on. But regardless of the motivations of the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries, I think that this Indianapolis shield has simply been dissolved and now now you see the truth of the purpose of the NCAA bureaucratic state, and more importantly, the people who are really making this, the decisions behind the scenes. And it's a star chamber. It has always been a star chamber. When you look at the true power players among NCAA insiders, you have always had a very small group of key decision makers and key advocates for the needs and demands of the big-time powerful football interests. And so I want to talk today about who those people are, what interests they 
represent and what it says about the future of the voluntary regulation of college sports and indeed the future of the NCAA itself. And I think it's so important to look at this small group of powerful NCAA insiders through the lens of this transformative change that we were promised on the backside of the NCAA's failed congressional campaign in 2021, then the Austin decision, and then the grand nil dump at the very end of June. And almost immediately after that, you had Bob Gates coming in and he's talking about transformative change in this constitutional makeover. And we need to align authorities with responsibilities at the NCAA. And we need to make the NCAA relevant, keep it relevant. And one of the reasons that I really went into detail on the Constitutional Committee than the Transformation Committee, is that you really can't understand what's happening right now unless you understand that process and how fundamentally misleading it was. And we were led to believe this is going to be transformative change and we're going to have a new NCAA, when in fact all that the that this constitutional makeover and other transformation committee's work really represents is the endpoint of the first round of autonomy legislation that the Power Five got in 2014. And, and I guess I should also say that I'm focusing exclusively on NCAA insiders. So this is the voluntary regulation of college sports. I'm not talking about perhaps the more important and powerful decision makers out in the sports entertainment industrial complex and the role of ESPN and Fox and all these major media outlets and broadcast media outlets and all of the surrounding corporate interests. So I'm not talking about that. And then I'm also not talking about perhaps even more important individual decision makers that are the people who comprise the leadership boards of the college football playoff, the board of directors, which is comprised of 11 members, a president from each of the 10 FBS conferences, and then the president of Notre Dame. Then you have the CFP management committee, which is made up of the conference commissioners of the 10 FBS conferences, and then the athletics director at Notre Dame. And those 22 people are going to have a substantial hand in determining the future of college sports. And we stopped talking about the CFP when it looked like the talks died down, but rest assured that that is another group. It's a cartel itself. It's a cabal, a star chamber of decision makers that are going to have enormous sway in what this market looks like. And I'm going to talk about the CFP in other episodes. And I think it's relevant to this discussion about the most powerful NCAA insiders to the extent that the CFP, when you look at the roster, you go to their website, you just look at the roster of those two boards, you really begin to see how important the prisoner's dilemma dynamics are in this cartel of big-time college football interests. And when you compare what the CFP does and how it's structured with who is actually running the NCAA now, I think you see two different pictures. With the NCAA, you have the interests concentrated in a very small handful of people that represent less than all of the FBS interests. Then with the CFP, you really see the unity of all of the FBS interests, and you see the prisoner's dilemma sitting right there. And are they better off cooperating going forward, or are they better off turning on each other? And it's going to be real interesting to see what happens with the CFP because that's where I think there is most likely going to be more incentive to agree and to move forward with some kind of a unified business plan. And of course, part of that is that they all have one common interest, and that is to eliminate external regulators, regulatory threats. So they all want the same thing from Congress and federal courts. They want federal courts eliminated as external regulators through antitrust immunity. They want states eliminated as potential regulators through preemption of, of state laws. And they want to make damn sure that athletes can't 
the employees. So they're unified on that. And I think they're also unified really in terms of maximizing revenue from the CFP. That is a common goal. And there may be differences of opinion about the best pathway to that and whether the contract with ESPN should be extended, whether they should put it out for bidding, you know, who, who knows? But that's, I think, an entity and a body of decision makers that are looking more at the common interest. I think with what's happening with the voluntary regulation of college sports under the NCAA umbrella, you got some profound dysfunction here and it runs through some isolated interests. But let me just run through for you the episodes that I did on the Constitution Committee and then the Transformation Committee and the role of the SEC and Greg Sankey in all this. And you're going to see how important that is when we look at this star chamber of decision makers under the NCAA umbrella. So, and this goes back to, I guess, October of 2021. In episode 71, I did an episode titled Committees, Omertas, and Big Time Football Power Plays. And this was really about how the Power Five were looking to start their takeover, their official takeover of the NCAA. Then episode 72, I talked about the Constitution Committee and its desire to preserve the NCAA administrative state, the very first order of business. This was true with autonomy in uh, 20. 2013-2014, and also true with this constitutional makeover. The very first order of business was to let the NCAA bureaucratic state know that its March Madness gravy train was not going to be disrupted. And as part of that, they wanted to secure the support of Divisions 2 and 3, who are downstream beneficiaries of March Madness welfare that runs through the NCAA national office. So the football interests don't really give a damn about the March Madness money because it is a a paltry sum compared to the growing value of the big time football product. And the NCAA was putting out all this propaganda about the work of this committee. And Bob Gates did an interview on this social series propaganda outlet that runs through the NCAA and is published on the NCAA website. And he was the chair of this constitution committee. He was a member of the board of governors and quote unquote independent member. And he pretty much came out and said straight up, look, yeah, we're going to do no harm here. We want to make sure that the March Madness gravy train is going to be running full steam ahead to create uh, job security for the NCAA bureaucrats. And then we want to make sure we we buy off enough in-system constituency groups that we can get to the two-thirds threshold to pass changes to the Constitution. And they did that by ensconcing in a prominent way these payoffs to Division Two and Division Three that come from the labors of Division One men's basketball players. Then I talk about the process that the Constitution Committee went through to actually redraft the Constitution. And then same thing in episode 74. And then episode 75, I talked about the emphasis on infractions and enforcement. And that episode's titled NCAA Draft Constitution, Crime Punishment and the Death of Presidential Leadership in College Sports. That's worth checking out. Then in episode 76, why does the NCAA stay under the NCAA umbrella? And that's a chronic question. And I offer some reasons why. And it will be interesting to see as discussions in the CFP start to pick up. And I think they're going to about expanding the CFP and whether there's going to be discussion about leaving the NCAA. And then in episode 78, I talk about this transformation committee and the composition of it and how important that is. And then I talk about in episode 79, how this constitution was built around athlete well-being and health and safety and how they flushed that down the toilet through the drafting process. And then a little later on, and this was getting into, let's see, January of 2022 and February of 2022, I did a couple of episodes on the backside of this constitutional makeover. The constitution was ratified on January 20th, 2022. And in episode 92, I did an episode on Greg Sankey and I titled it Greg Sankey in Charge and the Influence of the SEC in this whole process. And then on February 13th of 2022, episode 97, 
I really break down the new NCAA through the lens of the autonomy movement from 2013-2014. It's titled The New NCAA Power 5 Autonomy 2.0 and how this whole exercise, in my judgment, of this constitutional makeover really just completed the power grab that the Power 5 initiated in 2013-2014 to completely segregate their interests from the rest of the NCAA to create an association within an association and what became a sub-cartel of the NCAA. And the missing piece from the first round of autonomy in 2013-2014 was infractions. The Power Five wanted their own infraction system then. They didn't want to be subject to the NCAA national office's asymmetrical warfare on the Power Five schools. And they said, look, we have too much to lose and we need this peace. They didn't get that in 2013-2014. They got that through this constitutional makeover in 2021 and 2020. Two, it's important to note that Greg Sankey, who was the mover and shaker behind this constitutional makeover and this transformation committee, he takes credit for being the brains behind the autonomy movement in 2013, 2014. And in fact, you go to his bio on the CFP website, he's on the management committee, and he takes credit for the autonomy movement. And I think he just came in 2021 to finish off the autonomy job. And the Power Five finally got the infractions piece. And they did that when the NCAA was at a point of historic weakness. So after this constitutional makeover, the Power Five get what they want. They have the ability to write their own script in, in terms of infractions and enforcement and governance at the divisional level, because all these national powers were sent down to the divisions. That was the whole purpose of the uh, constitutional makeover, the justification for the constitutional makeover. And then this transformation committee, co-chaired by Greg Sankey and Julie Cromer. Julie Cromer's disappeared. We hardly knew you, Julie. <laughs> now all we get is garbage from Greg Sankey, who's increasingly sounding like Mark Emmert. But you know, this transformation committee is supposed to decide, you know, what are they going to do with these new powers and authorities? And in the next couple of episodes, I'm going to talk about the work of this transformation committee and go through what it promised in January of 2022, what it has delivered and how it got from there to here. And I think you're going to see that this is nothing more than another exercise in promise and delay, and then rearranging the furniture a little bit to claim that uh, this committee got something done when in fact it never intended to get anything meaningful done. And I, I think an analysis of this transformation committee's work is a really good case study in just how dishonest the NCAA bureaucratic state has always been in terms of what they have promised and what they have delivered. And that ties into another really important point that I think is going to be clear when I talk about these five people who are the most powerful NCAA insiders. And that is that the NCAA has always held to the militant belief that only the NCAA insiders can have a seat at the table. They do not want a dissenting voice. They don't want anyone who materially disagrees with the values as they've been framed and the business plan as it's been framed. This isn't about open and free discussion, which makes a mockery of all of these boards and the claimed independence of these boards and using those boards as an internal system of checks and balances. That's a joke. You have the same people making the same decisions using the same tactics. And I have said this to I am blue in the face. Nothing in college sports is ever going to change when you have the same people who created these crises that they are complaining about sitting in the decision-making chairs and trying to find a solution to those crises. First of all, they're ill-equipped to do that because they simply have proven that they are incapable of meaningful change. But more important than that, they have excluded from the decision-making tables any outside voices that may bring in a fresh perspective. And that is what totalitarian institutions do and governments do. And that is the NCAA. And they simply are not going to relinquish that control. And they are still claiming to federal courts and to Congress that they and they alone should sit in the iron throne of college sports regulation. They simply aren't going to change on their own. If there's 
One lesson that we've learned from the history of the regulation of college sports is that the people who have sat in the decision-making chairs are simply not going to change on their own. And that's the very reason that they've gone to Congress to eliminate external regulators who are forcing the NCAA and the Power Five into the 21st century. So I want to talk about these five people. And the way that I went about determining this list is really based on, I think, objective criteria and the positions that they hold on all of the various boards and committees. And I'll just say that's a painstaking process because it is not easy to try to get all of the information that you need to compare the rosters of all these decision-making bodies and the roles that these people play, because it's not just enough to look at whether they sit on a particular board, but what's their role there? And we have these five people holding very important leadership positions that really protect the power of this very small group. So I've identified eight bodies, governing boards, committees, subcommittees, that are the most important. And I want to look at where these five people sit with respect to those important boards and committees. These are NCAA insiders of the highest order. We have the old board of governors, the one that existed prior to the constitutional makeover, and that had 21 voting members. Then we have the new board of governors, which was reduced to nine and was announced just recently. Then we have the Division I Board of Directors, which hasn't changed, at least not yet. And that is really one of the most powerful bodies in the entire NCAA structure. The Board of Governors, as I've discussed, is an association-wide body. And the people on that body are supposed to be looking at association-wide interests. The people on the Board of Directors for Division One, it is a divisional body. Their primary focus and their loyalties and their fiduciary obligations rest with Division One broadly. Not any particular part of Division One, but all of Division One. Then you have the Division One Council, which is a larger body, and it is a legislative gatekeeping body. And that, again, is a Division One entity, and they are supposed to look at the issues through what's best for the Division One interests. Then we have the Constitution Committee. And when this thing was announced in early August of 2021. It was portrayed as one of the most consequential committees in the history of the NC. And then in October of 2021, as this Constitution Committee is beginning its work, you have the Division I Board of Directors forming the Transformation Committee. And that was an interesting committee because it had 21 members, almost the same size as the, the Division I Board of Directors. And this was a Division I Board of Directors body. It was to report to the Division I Board of Directors. But of those 21 members on the Transformation Committee, 11 came from the Power Five. So the the Power Five had majority control over that body. And then just recently, you had the new NCAA Board of Governors announcing its first co committees, and they formed two important committees. And it's important to note that these committees, they are under the Board of Governors, which means that they are supposed to be representing association-wide interests, not divisional interests, not conference interests, not individual institutional interests. Their loyalties lie with what's best for the association. And so we had one committee that was really a search committee devoted to looking at hiring a new NCAA president, and they're running that through this turnkey ZRG search firm that hired the Big 12 commissioner, Brett Yormark. They were also using a turnkey ZRG to find a new a chief financial officer at the NCAA, a very powerful position. But, you know, they're going to the entertainment industry <laughs> for advice on this. And then we have another Board of Governors committee. These were the first two committees formed by this new Board of Governors, the first real action items since they came into existence. And the second committee is a committee on congressional intervention. And you have this group of eight people who are looking at what they want from Congress and how they're going to approach Congress. And so those are the eight committees. And again, when you look across the mosaic of those committees, you are led to believe that they represent independent decision-making, independent bodies with independent input and advice. And that's an illusion. It has always been 
an illusion. And you may have heard a few of these names, but there are a couple I think you probably haven't. So I'm going to start with a gentleman named Shane Lyons. He is the athletics director at West Virginia, a Big 12 school. And as I've been working the rosters of all these committees, his name just keeps coming up again and again. And what's interesting about his role is that he's an athletics director. All these boards were loaded up with university presidents. The old NCAA constitution required that university presidents and chancellors dominate the Board of Governors and the Division I Board of Directors. So you have Lyons. He was on the old Board of Governors as an ex officio member. Because of the requirement that presidents and chancellors hold those seats, he couldn't actually be a voting member, but he was an ex officio member and had input on the new Board of Governors. Mr. Lyons survived the cut, you know, from 25, including ex officios. The old board had 25 and the new board has, I don't know, including ex officio, maybe 15 or 16, but he is ex officio on the new board of governors. He is a member of the board of directors, Division I board of directors. He is also on the Division I council. And importantly, Mr. Lyons is the chair of the Division I Council. And I believe it's that capacity that allows him to sit on the Board of Governors in his ex officio capacity. But that's a very important position. He also was on the Constitution Committee, and he is now on the Transformation Committee. And at some point, I'm going to do a chart of all of the people that are on all these uh, boards and committees, and then do the, the representation, the crossover representation. And you're going to see that there are very few people that have this many check marks. I made a little table for this, and I got my eight boards. It's check, 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 check. Lions is everywhere. And he has a prominent seat at the table. And I guess I'm doing this in reverse importance order. So I would say Lions is probably number five on this list. And I would put at number four someone who you probably have never heard of. And his name is Randy Woodson. He is the chancellor at North Carolina State University. He is an ACC representative. So we have one Big 12. Now we have an ACC representative. And Woodson is really interesting. I talked about Woodson in connection with the NC State Enforcement and Infractions issue. And I did a number of episodes on that. And remember, that came out of the basketball scandal. And NC State was the first school to run through this independent accountability resolution process. And they weren't crazy about what the NCAA was doing. And for good reason, the NCAA was running roughshod over NC State's due process rights. And NC State was preparing to sue the NCAA. So Woodson was at that time a member of the old Board of Governors. So let me just go through and tell you all the boards he's on. He was on the old BOG. He's not on the new Board of Governors, but he is on the Division One. Board of Directors. And then he is also on the Transformation Committee and then also the new subcommittee on congressional intervention. That's some heavy hitting representation there. And in terms of conference representation so far, we've got the Big 12 and the ACC. All right, who comes in at number three? And this is going to be Linda Livingstone who is the president of Baylor University, which is currently in the Big 12 Conference. And I've talked quite a bit about Linda Livingstone, did a few episodes on her after her really awful congressional testimony in the House on September 30th of 2021. So let's look at where Dr. Livingstone has landed on these eight important boards and committees. She was on the old board of governors. She is now on the new board of governors. And not only did she make the cut down to nine, she was recently elected the chair of the board of governors, an extraordinarily powerful position. She also is on the Division I board of directors. She was on the Constitution Committee she is on the Transformation Committee, and she is on the Board of Governors Search Committee for the new president. And in addition to the NCAA roles she served, she, again, as I noted, testified in Congress. And she was very clearly spouting the NCAA Power Five 
party line. And that hearing was interesting because Dr. Livingstone presented herself as the president of Baylor University, not a member of the board of governors or the board of directors or any of these committees. And when you watch the hearing on C-SPAN, they have the little caption that tells you who these people are, and it's president of Baylor University. But she also has been a key decision maker on the Big 12 Conference Entities Board. So we have these separate conference entities. Linda Livingstone has held an officer's position. And then she was on the three-person search committee that the Big 12 had to find a new conference commissioner. And they recently hired Brett Yormark. I did an episode on that as well. And they used this turnkey ZRG firm. They hired directly out of the entertainment industry. And that's important background because Linda Livingstone is going to have the most prominent voice on the board of governors when it comes to accepting or rejecting the recommendation of turnkey ZRG for the NCAA president and then finding a new NCAA president. So I think she's clearly signaled that her value system, at least at the conference level, is towards the entertainment industry. So let's just make, let's just make it official. You know, Let's just have the NCAA president hired directly from Disney or MGM or from some other component of the sports entertainment industrial complex. Simply put, Linda Livingstone is one of the most powerful people in all of college sports, and she is among the five most powerful NCAA insiders. So now we're down to number two, and that is Jerry Moorhead, president of the University of Georgia, which we all know is in the SEC. And uh, President Moorhead has operated pretty much off the radar screen. And I mentioned this in prior episodes. This is in the nature of disclosure. I went to law school at the University of Georgia when I was there. Professor Moorhead was teaching. He had a joint appointment at the business school and the law school. And I got to know him fairly well. I have enormous respect for President Moorhead. But he is an off-the-radar kind of guy. I don't think he's seeking the spotlight, but he's smart as hell <laughs> and he knows how to run a chessboard. And you know, that's what's happening right now in college sports and particularly in this regulatory vacuum and knowing what you're going to do four or five steps down the line or what you're going to do if your opponent makes a move you didn't anticipate. It's very important. And he's an attorney. He was a federal prosecutor. President Moorhead also has very finely honed political instincts. And if you're the university president of a flagship state university, you are in part a politician in your relationship to the state legislature and the executive branch and all of the important influences on the political process is really crucial. And among the five people on my short list of the most powerful NCAA insiders, President Moorhead's the only one that has that unique combination of skills and experience. So let's take a look at the roles that President Moorhead holds and has held. So he was on the old NCAA Board of Governors. He is also on the new NCAA Board of Governors. He is on the Division I Board of Directors. In fact, he is the chairperson of the Division I Board of Directors. He was on the Constitution Committee. He is on the Transformation Committee. And he is on the Board of Governors Search Committee. And uh, President Moorhead also holds a leadership position on the Southeastern Conference Entity. That, that separate body. So he has served a similar role for the SEC that Linda Livingstone has served for the Big 12. And so far in this list of five, we've got three Power Five University presidents, and they represent the Big 12, the ACC, and the SEC. And that's important. And I'm going to talk about who's not on this list and what interests are not represented on this list. And that, I think, tells a story as well. And now we're down to number one, and that is Greg Sankey, Commissioner of the Southeastern Conference. And what's interesting, you know, I'm looking at my board here that I have all these committees and the people and all the check marks. And when you look at Greg Sankey's check marks, the he only has three, and some of these other people have checks right across the board. And that reflects a couple of things. First of all, the governing board representation structure under the old constitution was built around presidential leadership and control, and conference commissioners weren't eligible to serve on the governing 
boards. And he's had some involvement with the NCAA. He was head of the Infractions and Enforcement Committee at one point, and I think he served on some other committees. But he has largely been a quote-unquote external voice from the NCAA itself. And most people regard him as one of the most powerful people in college sports. And he cultivated that reputation, I think, in large part because of the work that he did back during autonomy. So Sankey is an outside guy. He's also testified in Congress. So he testified at the July 1st, 2020 hearing. And then he has been very aggressive in his public comments. And ESPN has anointed him the savior of college sports. So let me just identify Sankey's check marks and, and talk a little bit more about the role he's played. So he is on the Division I Council. And that's very important because the work of this transformation committee is going to run through the Division I Council, then up to the Division I Board of Directors. And Sankey's got a seat right there at the Division I Council. He's also, of course, on the transformation committee, and he is the co-chair. And for all intents and purposes, he is running the transformation committee. And then he was recently named to this uh, Board of Governors, the new Board of Governors Committee on Congressional Intervention. And I I talked in the last episode about all the hats that Sankey wears and about the obvious conflicts of interest. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that here in a second. But what's interesting about Sankey, and I talked about this in, uh, I think it was episode 96, Greg Sankey in charge, when he was building his public image as the great influencer behind the scenes, he had the luxury of an absence of real accountability because he wasn't holding positions of authority in the NCAA. So all his criticism, a lot of these related to enforcement and infractions and his disdain for the independent accountability resolution process, which I'm going to talk a little bit more about here. This transformation committee and Greg Sankey behind the scenes have basically cut that off at the knees. And as of yesterday, there was an announcement on the NCAA website that the IARP is going to be shut down. And I, I think they're going to let the existing cases in the system run through. And then it's gone. But that was preordained before the transformation committee really began its work. And Greg Sankey was the one who said he wanted it shut down. But at the time, he wasn't holding a position of leadership. And I said in that episode, 96, that it's a whole different ballgame now that Greg Sankey is sitting in a position of accountability. And the legend of Greg Sankey now is being put to the test because it's not running through ESPN filters. It's going to be running through what's actually happening in this transformation committee. And as I'm going to explain in upcoming episodes, that is nothing more than another NCAA smokescreen. The transformation committee is using the same playbook that the NCAA national office has used for decades and that Mark Emmert perfected, and that is promise and delay and then do nothing. And if enough time passes, people forget what you promised. And during the delay process, you can move the goalpost. That happened with this transformation committee in, the, in terms of the timing. They came out in January and they said, look, we're going to have some work product by August 1st. And we're going to have recommendations. We're going to have some changes, some transformational changes. That's why we call it the transformation committee. you know. <laughs> and virtually nothing has happened. And in the very last set of minutes, the most recent minutes published on the NCAA website showing the work of this transformation committee, all of a sudden, and without any explanation, without any coverage in the media, They've completely retooled the time frame. So now it's not the beginning of August. That's come and gone, and we have virtually nothing from the Transformation Committee. Now it's the end of August for a few things, then a few things in October, then a few things in November. And that is classic NCAA. And when I get into the work of the committee, I'm going to read some passages that are just almost incomprehensible in administrative speak. And that's the language that Greg Sankey is speaking right now. And when I listen to him talk about the regulation of college sports and what's happening and what's likely to happen, he sounds more and more just like Mark Emmert. So now I want to summarize. We've got these five people. We've got two from the SEC two from the Big 12, one from the ACC. These five people are the power players at the voluntary regulatory level now in college sports. And I just want to note that among these five power players, you have them occupying the two most powerful individual seats in the entire NCAA governance process. So Linda Livingstone is the chair of the Board of Governors. It's only a nine-member board. And Jerry Moorhead is also on that board. 
board. And when you look at the other seven voting members, you really don't have any power players. You have a representative from lower level division one. You've got a representative from division two, one from division three. Then you have a couple of independent members, but nobody that's really in the big time college sports sweepstakes. So Livingstone and Moorhead are going to have really a controlling voice on that board. And then with the Division One Board of Directors, the other most important body at the regulatory level in college sports, you have Jerry Moorhead as the chair. For both the chair of the Board of Governors and the chair of the Division One Board of Directors, you have enormous power and prerogative in setting the agenda, steering the agenda, steering the conversation, and influencing the outcome. So it's not just about the number of seats that these powerful individuals hold. It's the nature of those seats. And when you look at how the work of this transformation committee has been portrayed and how its recommendations have moved through ostensibly independent NCAA governing board decision-making, you really begin to see how conflicted this entire decision-making process is. So we've got on the Transformation Committee, Jerry Moorhead, Linda Livingstone, Shane Lyons, and Randy Woodson. And of course, Greg Sankey is the chair of that committee. So those people are involved in setting these recommendations that are then sent to the Division I Council for consideration and approval, independent consideration and independent approval. And on the Division I Council, you've got both Shane Lyons and Greg Sankey, and Shane Lyons is the chair of the Division I Council. So you have Sankey and Lyons in very powerful positions there, essentially reviewing their own work product that came out of the Transformation Committee. And then from the Division I Council, it's supposed to then go to the Division I Board of Directors for a Another round of quote-unquote independent analysis and review. And on the Division I Board of Directors, you've got essentially the same cast of characters. You don't have Sankey, but you have Linda Livingstone, Shane Lyons, Randy Woodson, and importantly, Jerry Moorhead, who is the chair of the Division I Board of Directors. And then if there is any input from the Board of Governors, that would then run through Linda Livingstone, who's the chair of that board. And of course, President Moorhead is also on the Board of Governors. So you just have a string of conflict of interest running through the entire decision-making process, yet the way that the NCAA portrays that process, you're led to believe that at each stage of that decision-making process, there is true independence and that these decision-makers are looking at what's coming up from beneath them with clear and unbiased eyes. And that simply isn't the case. So now let me turn to who's not on that list and what interests really aren't represented among these five crucial NCAA insider decision makers, and also how weak the representation is of certain interests across these uh, governing boards and these important committees. You don't have anybody from the Pac-12, and more importantly, you do not have anyone from the Big Ten. And so I went back and looked at the Pac-12 and Big Ten representatives across these eight boards and committees. And I just want to just use the Big Ten, really. The Pac-12 has some token representation, but you don't have the conference commissioners with a role now. You don't have George Klyovkov. You don't have Kevin Warren. And I'll just note that Jim Phillips, the commissioner of the ACC, is on the transformation committee as well. But the Big Ten has really been marginalized here. And you can draw whatever conclusions you want from this and assign any motives that you may want to from this. So I'm looking at the old board of governors. And on the old board of governors, you had Rebecca Blank, the who was then the chancellor of Wisconsin-Madison. She was going to take the Northwestern job. And unfortunately, she would, when she was diagnosed recently with a very aggressive cancer, I think she's just pulled out of higher education altogether. But on the new Board of Governors, the Big Ten has no representation. And on the Division I Board of Directors, the Big Ten representatives are the president of the University of Maryland. Let's just face it, Maryland is outside the footprint of the Big Ten. Maryland was a last-ditch pickup for the Big Ten in the first round of conference realignment. And the only reason that Big Ten wanted them was for the D.C. 
market, the TV market. But Maryland could not be further outside the climate and culture of the Big Ten and really outside of its footprint. And it doesn't have a Big Ten-like football product. So it's an outlier in the Big Ten conference. And I'm guessing at the Big Ten conference meetings, not a power player. And then the other Big Ten representative is the senior woman administrator, the SWA, this gender-specific category of representation that is designed to get women a seat at the table in, in the boys club and goes back a long way. But that representative is Jana Blaze from Northwestern. And I would say that the SWAs, along with the faculty athletics representatives, the FARs, are the least significant and consequential representatives on these governing boards. And I just don't think that they hold a lot of sway. And then on the Division One Council, you have uh, former Penn State Athletic Director Sandy Barber. She, I think, stepped down earlier this year, and Penn State has a new athletics director. So that's a more prominent position, and, and Penn State obviously is a heavy hitter in college football and was a perfect fit for the Big Ten when they joined. And uh, Barber was also on the Constitution Committee, this association-wide body, but she is not on the Transformation Committee. And I talked about this when I talked about the transition into the Transformation Committee's work, the Constitution Committee, then this Transformation Committee that was formed in October of 2021. And who was on that Transformation Committee? And you simply don't have a powerful presence in the Big Ten. And again, whether that's purposeful or not, who knows? But the Division I Board of Directors selected the members of the Transformation Committee, and that ran through the SEC. So you had two Big Ten representatives, or have, on this Transformation Committee. You have the athletic Athletics director from the University of Maryland. Again, I'm, we're back to Maryland, and it's a weak sister in the power structure of the Big Ten. And you don't have the Big Ten conference commissioner. You've got a athletics director. And then you have uh, the same woman, Jenna Blaze from Northwestern, the senior women's administrator. And again, she's not swinging a very big hammer in those rooms. And then on these new and very important Board of Governors committees, the search committee for the new NCAA president, you have no representation for the Big Ten or the Pac-12. You have no representation on this other very important committee that is going to define the new agenda for engagement with Congress, no Big Ten representative. So when you look across the landscape of the boards that ostensibly have some authority in college sports, the Big Ten, in my judgment, has been marked marginalized. Kevin Warren is nowhere. And you don't have a heavy hitting athletics director or university president from one of the top Big Ten schools. And of course, now you have with this conference realignment 2.0 and the Big Ten picking off UCLA and USC, you have this war, open war between the Big Ten and the SEC to position themselves as the most powerful football conference in all of college sports. And that overlay, I think, is really interesting at a time when the NCAA, through this Power Five takeover, is trying to establish itself as a legitimate regulatory authority for the voluntary regulation of college sports. And I think one of the reasons that this transformation committee may be so ineffective is that it was built around this power play that I think could be viewed through the lens of SEC interests. And if the Big Ten feels like it's been shut out of that, then that, I think, makes it very difficult for the conferences that are represented in the current governance model, the Big 12, the SEC, and the ACC, to get anything done. Who knows? So much of this is going on behind the scenes. All I can do is look at what we can glean from the public record and draw what I think are some reasonable conclusions from that. But I spent a lot of time talking about this nil market and so much of the propaganda that's come out from all the sky is falling in-system stakeholder beneficiaries about this new nil market is silly because with the infractions and enforcement piece that the Power Five got on the backside of this constitutional makeover, they have it within their power to enforce those rules. And there's no reason why they shouldn't. When you look at the decision makers on this transformation committee and the fact that it's running through the, the SEC primarily, can you trust them to, to be objective? 
effective in putting together an enforcement and infractions process at the divisional level that's going to go in and try to start pointing the fingers at other Power Five schools and their nil activity? I mean, no way. I mean, and that's silent impediment to the NCAA now enforcing its own rules or the Power Five enforcing the rules. So it's a really interesting regulatory environment. And I think that it is defined in part by some of these tensions that have existed among and between the Power Five conferences. And that goes back to the 1970s and the pre-Board of Regents era. And I, I think that you also have to look at Honestly, look at the fact that these people simply cannot be adequate representatives for all of the interests that they serve by their presence on all these boards and committees. And let's just look at Linda Livingstone, because I think she's put herself out there a little bit more because she's testified in Congress and she's on all these boards. So she is representing the NCAA association-wide interest as the chair of the Board of Governors. She is also representing the interests of Division One as a member of the Division One Board of Directors. She is also supposedly representing or represented the interests of the whole association through her role as a Constitution Committee member, and then the interests of the Division One through the Transformation Committee. And then she's on the search committee for the new NCAA president. So, And then she also, of course, is very important in the decision-making at the Big 12 Conference level. And then Baylor University has its own interests here. And it is impossible for any one person to serve all of those interests, to wear all of those hats, which have obvious conflicts, not just the appearance of conflicts, but obvious conflicts in this environment in Realignment 2.0, where it's every conference and every school for itself. You cannot say that she can adequately represent all those interests at the same time. And I don't think the people who are holding these positions of power even see it that way. This is about getting what you can, protecting your interests, and trying to make sure that you land where you want to land in that regard. And I might be accused of putting on my tinfoil hat here, but I don't really think so. When I look at Baylor University's involvement through Linda Livingstone and that West Virginia's involvement through Shane Lyons and then also through Joe Manchin. He gets brought into this discussion about really Nick Saban's interests and the SEC's interests and Tommy Tuberville interests. I'm thinking, okay, where are Baylor and uh, West Virginia going to land here? Like when the dust settles on realignment 2.0, if Baylor and West Virginia wind up in the SEC, that's going to be interesting. And you can't rule that out. And you say, well, that's crazy. How could individual institutions interest be driving the train here. And just say this. And one of the reasons that I really went into detail of those 1997 have-have-not hearings in the Senate the Judiciary Committee about the postseason football and the transition from the Bowl Alliance to the BCS was it showed just how powerful the individual institutional interests are at the political level. And again, we're here talking about the voluntary regulation of college sports through the NCAA, but I think the same pressures exist. And you had in those 1997 hearings, Mitch McConnell, one of the most powerful people in the history of the United States Senate, taking to the microphone against the haves, the big time football haves back in 1997, on behalf of the University of Louisville. And McConnell was a graduate of Louisville. And Louisville was on the outside looking in. They were a have not in 1997, and they ultimately landed with the ACC. But you had Mitch McConnell very aggressively promoting the interests of Louisville in those 1997 hearings. And then in the 2003 hearings, which was just a replay of 1997 because the have-nots really didn't make any progress between 97 and 2003, you had Orrin Hatch, the chair of the Judiciary Committee, making the case for Utah and BYU. He's from Utah. And it was quite clear that he was promoting the interests of individual institutions. So yeah, individual institutions and the interests of the people promoting them can be very powerful in the decision-making process. And if it can happen in the United States Senate, it sure as hell can happen in the NCAA. So I'm going to be paying close attention to what happens in Conference Realignment 2.0, but it could get pretty interesting here. And I think that's going to happen sooner rather than later. And I I guess there's one last thing I want to emphasize, and that is regardless of what interests these five people perceive they are furthering in the various roles that they play here, they have a seat at the table 
in the most consequential briefings that occur at the NCAA and really at the voluntary governance level of college sports. So when the lawyers come in to give a briefing, all five of these people are likely at that table. When the lobbyists are giving their briefings, all five of these people are likely at the table. When their high price spin doctor, Bully Pulpit Interactive Inc., which I'm going to talk about in the next episode, comes in and tells the NCAA how to spin its message and the execution of this comprehensive communications plan, who's sitting at those briefings? These people have a direct line of communication to all of the important external advisors. And they have that open line of communication because of the positions that they hold. And on its face, the power players, the key decision makers at the Big Ten and the Pac-12 aren't sitting in those rooms, aren't part of those conversations. Who knows? Maybe they have gotten a seat at the table behind the scenes. But from the composition of these boards, these governing boards and these important committees, it looks to me like you've got the SEC in the driver's seat with the Big 12 and the ACC playing supporting roles. And you really don't have a meaningful presence for the other two power conferences. And in an environment, again, in an environment where you have an unstable conference structure because of what the Big Ten and the SEC have done, you really need to have everybody with a seat at the table at a, a meaningful seat, not a, no offense to senior women administrators or to the University of Maryland or to faculty athletics representatives, but that's not a meaningful seat. And Kevin Warren needs to be in these discussions. George Klyavkov needs to be in these discussions. Maybe the presidents of Michigan and Ohio State need to be in these discussions. And from the face of the composition of these governing bodies and these committees, they don't have that seat. And that's a problem. So, all right, with that, I'm going to wrap this thing up. And we'll be talking about this transformation committee and a couple of really interesting things that came out of their work. And we'll get to that soon. So I want to thank you for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. 